Hello, WellPod listeners. Program note. Today's episode includes strong language, talk of drug use, and a lot of strange noises. These are all made by today's guest, and they are all intentional. Compiled from truly inferior tapes of stupid self-involvement, now on display for your dismissal or gradual acceptance. Losers. One solid circle of Sebado's Centrido. Losers. One solid circle of Sebado's Centrido. Losers. Make its downstroke stroke you down. Make you achieve down mind. Welcome to The Well. I am Brandon Edgens. And I am Anson Mount. And today's guest is Lou Barlow. Who is Lou Barlow to you? Lou Barlow is someone you made me aware of at one point. Mm -hmm. Which incarnation of Lou Barlow? It was the solo Lou Barlow, self-produced Lou Barlow, Lubicorp Lou Barlow, that I first remember. And then I went back and I'd I'd heard about... No, no, that's not true. I had a folk implosion album when I was... In college, I, I, I always had an admiration for your admiration of Lou Barlow. <laughs> so it was kind of a, 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 a it was a obvious uh, choice uh, for a guest when uh, you, you you graciously agreed to join me on this podcast adventure. I first discovered Lou Barlow the way most people probably did, through his work as the bass player for Dinosaur Jr., of whom I was a huge fan. So, going back. It's 1992, and I'm doing some off-road driving in my truck, looking for the entrance to a cave, because I wanted to go spelunking by myself, which was, looking back on it, probably not a great idea. And I'm listening to Dinosaur Jr.'s second album, You're Living All Over Me, and it starts to rain so hard that my wipers can't clear the view, so I stop my truck out in the middle of the woods, and then the last song on the album plays. And it sounds like nothing else on the album. It was a total surprise. And then it gets to this part where it gets so distorted, I actually pull the tape out of the cassette player to make sure my tape player is not eating the tape. It's not. So, I put it back in and just marvel at this apocalyptic sound that marries perfectly with the apocalyptic weather. And in that moment... I became an instant Lou Barlow fan, and I wanted to hear more. And lucky for me, there was more. A lot more. I've been listening to Lou Barlow's music for over 25 years now, so it was a huge thrill for me to sit down across the table from him in his hotel in Brooklyn before his show and chat. And now, I am... Very excited to share with you part one 
a partial history of Lou Barlow. It's the early 80s in Massachusetts, and a young Lou Barlow has a summer job at a nursing home, making enough money to buy some primitive recording equipment and weed. <laughs> what a great start. <laughs> Pot early on, I think, was incredible, you know. It actually really made me so much more confident as a songwriter. and writing. I mean, actually, what I would do was initially early on is like I would sit and I'd write songs on my four track and record them and then I would just get absolutely baked and listen back to what I had done and it was so entertaining you know it was just like this it was like the it became kind of like the the next level of masturbation you know <laughs> it was so gratifying and I loved it so much and and you know, it's where I, I became my audience. I became my own audience. With, with, the, with the introduction of weed into my life, I became really entertained by myself and the music that I could make. And so it really kind of triggered this real, this real momentum in my creative life, for sure. Next level of masturbation, which thanks for the tip. <laughs> I hadn't thought about that one yet. I've been looking for the next level. <laughs> yeah, don't wrap that rope around your neck and hang yourself from your door. No, don't go that route. We got the four track. <laughs> Just break out the four track. Drop the auto asphyxia. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he died from four tracking. Four tracked himself to death. <laughs> You know, one thing that really got me into punk rock was the the total disregard for musicianship and what came before. You know, that idea of like cleaning, clearing the. But at the same time, I, mean, I, I like that idea because I think that was a very it was a really good time for that idea. Like in the ni early 1980s, you know, rock music anyway had become very intricate, really, and I just really thought that was very off-putting to me. So making it simple and that empowered me, you know, so. I love those noisy, weird home recordings. It was just Lou by himself, making himself happy. I don't hear a lot of that in most music. I hear a lot of people trying to prove themselves worthy of our adoration through technical feats or gymnastics singing stunts, you know, who has the most range, the mm -hmm. most powerful voice, etc. Lou wasn't a performer. Uh, or a show-off in that sense. No, it reminds me a lot of Daniel Johnston. Yeah. Yeah. Someone just doing it because they love doing it. Yeah, yeah. Just doing it because it's fun. And I, God, why do I not hear much of that anymore? But he has so much creative energy, and he can't do it all by himself, so he starts a band, which was weird, because he never saw himself as a performer. I was very interested in being invisible, you know, so I was like wearing, you know, my grandfather's cardigans and you know, I was dressing like that. I was sort of pre-grunge, you know, like 19, 
you know, 81, 82, that was, I wore oversized sweaters and, and jeans and Converse and, and was just shrinking into myself, you know. I didn't want to, I didn't want to in any way call attention to myself. And like, so for me, going to school with a, you know, a buzz cut with chunks cut out of it would have been suicide <laughs> or just an invitation to a lot of grief, you know. If he wanted to be part of the hardcore music scene, he was going to have to start a band. So he put out an ad for, quote, drummer wanted to play really fast. And the person who answered that ad, an equally young but much more confident, Jay Mascus. He showed up at uh, my parents' house. You know, his dad drove him down. I, I think we got together before we had driver's licenses. He dressed really well. <laughs> That's all. I mean, I <laughs> really. Uh, he dressed. I mean, I'm just saying. He dressed. Yes, he dressed the part. You know, jeans rolled up, a big pair of Doc Martens, maybe some suspenders, a really fucking amazing punk rock shirt. You know, like a Discharge T-shirt back when nobody had Discharge T-shirts, and this fucked up haircut. You know, and was just like, you're like, whoa. I mean, you're like, this is what people dress like in L.A., in New York. You know, this is like, he was like a big city punk, you know, like really like living it, wearing it, you know, and okay. And then he sat down at the drum kit and could play like a million miles an hour and was prodigiously talented, you know. And, so, going, yeah. and going someplace. Going someplace, like really like ambitious and uh, and energetic, but then at the same time, the most laconic, <laughs> you know, just like his actual personality, like when he actually spoke, it was like, he had all of this momentum from his look, his creative ambitions. And then when he opened his mouth, it was like time stood still. <laughs> and it was like, it was such a hard thing to, for me to negotiate as a, as a, you know, a 15-year-old. Oh, you're 15? Yeah. The band they formed in high school was a hardcore punk band called Deep Wound. It was loud and angry and super hardcore. Pressure! Deep Wound. It's such a high school punk rock name, you know, like, what's the most aggressive thing we can come up with? Wound? No, deeper. Deep wound. <laughs> but eventually Jay and Lou found the dogma of being punk too restrictive and started a new band together called Dinosaur, later Dinosaur Jr. I mean, that was kind of the cool thing also, you know, with Jay... Is that we really we did definitely we were totally on the same page as far as all right done with that that's stupid you know let's listen to the Dream Syndicate now let's listen to how dare you let's listen to REM let's listen to you know like let's let's embrace other stuff. Jay on guitar and Lou on bass. And for those of you who don't know, Dinosaur Jr. became a seminal band that helped spawn the grunge scene in the later 80s, and Jay became a guitar hero currently ranked number 86 on Rolling Stone's list of greatest guitar players ever. Mm -hmm. 
they were making great music together. But personality conflicts combined with the fact that they were young men with very poor communication skills led to Lou being unceremoniously kicked out of the band that he loved. It was kind of a heartbreaking situation, you know, for me. I was I was really in love with the music and and kind of in love with Jay and Murph, you know, in my and in a way, you know, it was tortured. It wasn't a great relationship, but it was definitely, you know, important and formative for me. Lou now had a lot of pent-up creative energy and no outlet. So he partnered up with an old friend from Massachusetts hardcore scene. Eric Gaffney, a really charismatic guy. This guy loved performing. He had so much of this, like, really aggressive charisma. I met him, like, in the punk scene, you know, like, where we, we would have these... You know, you'd have your like your hall shows where you'd play the VFW or the Grange Hall. Or the... he was a big fan of he was a fan of Deep Wound, Jay and I's band. And then he had his own band called Gray Matter, that were pretty cool. And he was the drummer. He was just funny, you know. And he really and he really had this sort of unabashed love for the Beatles, you know, which was kind of cool, you know. He and we loved this sort of extreme music, but he was also very, you know, open-minded at a time that like when people weren't, you know, you. People like that hardcore mindset was very, it was very narrow-minded, let's say, you know, and I like hardcore, that's it, you know, but Eric, it was very apparent just immediately when talking to him that he, had, he was very open-minded and that he loved all kinds of music and he had a real, a real thing for the 60s, you know, because his parents were hippies and he has a, you know, a childhood story that like, you know, Tim Buckley patted him on the head and for something, you know, and... And, uh, you know, living in that area in Western Mass, there was actually, there were, it was where a lot of hippies kind of ended up. And so Eric had a real uh, sort of this affection slash, like, anger towards, <laughs> like, hippies and the alternative lifestyle. He and I just started talking. And then we also kind of had this, this kind of funny uh, infatuation with, like, religion as well, you know, like Christianity. And we talked a lot. And we even went to, like, Bible readings together and stuff. And... And we were really into acid, so <laughs> it's like we were into our into our weed and our acid and religion. And... They formed Sebado, a nonsense word. Lou likes making up words. If Dinosaur Jr. was the godfather of grunge, then Sebado was the godfather of indie lo-fi. And for a while, Eric and Lou produced some intimate and strange music, full of tape cut-ups and purposefully overloaded microphone sounds. Lou and Eric were not just embracing all these limitations, they were being inspired by them. And when I discovered it, I was just so happy to hear someone experimenting. Not using the excuse that they don't have the right equipment or technique to make music. It was just loaded with surprises and juxtaposing ideas, like the noise you're hearing right now. But then Lou would betray all of this with his incredible talent as a lyricist in a song like this, Brand New Love. Brand new love. 
Just to keep you on your toes, he ends that beautiful song with some sort of tape cut-up, mocking his old bandmate, Jay Mascus. What was that, Jay Mascus? Yeah, that was a recording. So he took, oh wait, he took old tapes of Jay Mascus and he stuck it on the end of, of his track? Yeah, a lot of the songs on those first Sebado records was just Lou working out his anger, how mad he was at Jay for kicking him out of Dinosaur. I mean, I mean this, the, the, the first track is The Freed Pig. It's about Jay Mascus. Right, I was obsessed to bring you down Watching your every move Playing a little boy game Always with something to prove Waiting to cut you down Making it hard to This version of the song was recorded once Sebado added a third member, Jason Lowenstein. And they did very well as a trio. But then, eventually, some of the old fun habits from Lou and Eric's adolescence became a problem. We spent time either, you know, jamming, or looking for weed, you know, and that's what we, that's what we did, and it's what brought us together. It's what tore us apart, you know. It's like, oh really? Well, acid did. I oh think. okay. Acid. We had a couple of really intense acid trips together that really fucked everything up. <laughs> I mean, I, there's two people in my life definitely that I've, I've seen acid like really, really fuck them up, like really put the crack in their psyche, you know. It's pretty bad. It introduces you to the void, which is not great when you're a male and you're early, or actually for anybody, but actually I'll just say male, you know, because when you're in that period where, that's, those are the periods when things like schizophrenia can actually really take hold and really mess with people. And real mental issues, and I think I've seen it with you know, Eric was a little, you know, it was a little rough. Eric was also very, like Jay, very uh, possessive. Jason, um, he's five years younger than me, so we had kind of a I had kind of an older brother thing with him. I hope to play with Jason forever <laughs> in some capacity, you know. Eric had brought us together. So when Eric left, it was Jason and I. And we actually, I mean, the initially the I mean, we had we had the most successful run of Sebado when after Eric left, just because we both we were pretty much on the same page as far as like how much we were going to tour and. 
It couldn't really take the experimental aspects of what I did or what I loved, you know, with tapes and cut up stuff and that to translate that to a live thing was it was impossible because it's literally, you know, we had great shows and then awful shows and I wanted to I wanted to make something that was a little more reliable, so I actually streamlined my songwriting quite a bit and um you know, and then when Eric left, I, that was pretty much what took over. It's just, we're going to go and play songs. We're going to play our songs, and it's going to be, you know, no bullshit, no, like, not to say that they are, the, not to say that the experimental side is bullshit, because it's not, but it's incredibly stressful when you're trying to play, you're doing a 30-date tour, you're 29 shows in 30 days, and you're in a minivan, and and you're getting far too high every day, and you're hungover, whatever. So it's like you had to, like... It was like out of necessity, I felt I, ha- I needed to streamline it. During this period, Lou is working hard on the road with Jason and the new drummer, Bob Fay, And they made much more radio-friendly three-minute songs and released a few more well-regarded albums. And then decided to go on a hiatus to pursue other ideas. And Lou started another band called The Folk Implosion with John Davis, with whom he produces his biggest hit to date, Natural One. It's a very different sound. You, you know the song. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. in a very, very different sound for Lou and also a very different kind of creative collaboration. I I hate to say, but it wasn't like masculine. We were two guys that obviously had very um, strong female uh, figures in our life and whose, you know, our sisters and our mothers were the people that kind of shaped us probably, you know, I mean, John's uh, family were actually academics and he... He was really smart too. You know, I'm not college educated. I'm not. I, you know, I'm kind of a pseudo intellectual. He was a real. He was a real intellectual. He still is. So, and I kind of got a. That was kind of a rush being near. John and I had a very open, communicative, collab, really collaborative, down to just minute detail. It was very personal. It was a very personal. It felt like what I imagined, like really successful, you know, Rodgers and Hammerstein, these people that would really get together, like one would sit down at the piano, like, what are you thinking of today, Roger? And like, <laughs> and they, and they, and the songs would take place would come together out of these conversations that they had i really kind of i have this very idealized vision of what occurs with like really amazing songwriting teams and i had i just felt that kind of synergy with john and 
the stuff that we made together in the, in the short years, I mean, we were, I think we were collaborating for maybe four or five years, but that was pretty incredible. If you've been paying attention, I think you know what's about to happen. Lou was getting divorced, doing a lot of drugs, out of control, and John needed a lot more control. But they soldiered through and made a beautiful third record together, One Part Lullaby. Sounds gorgeous, and it did really well. And the day it came out, John quit the band. When that ended, I actually really, I entered probably the most difficult, that coincided with moving to Los Angeles and a lot of other upheavals in my life. And I was pretty lost for a long time after that, you know, until I made my solo record in 2005. And that's around the time that you got to know him. Is that Luby Corny he's talking about? Uh, emo. Oh yeah. 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 That was, I, that's a, that's a good, that's a well-recorded solid album. Yeah, and you can, you know, and knowing what he was going through at the time, you know, he's getting divorced from his sweetheart, his childhood sweetheart of 25 years. Yeah. Uh, and the t- even the title of the album is Home Backwards. Yeah, exactly. And that's what happened. He moved. He was he went out to L.A. because she wanted to go to L.A. He didn't really even want to go there. He went out there. Everything went south. And then he had to move back to Massachusetts. He was in for a period of introspection on his life and his career. Hit me like a kick to a thickening gut The beat has gone beating me up No one's gonna lift me out of this rut The groove is gone, ground me to dust It was 2005. Emo was Lou Barlow by himself, taking everything he's learned and now painting on a much bigger canvas. And I love this record. I don't want to sound like a shill, but just do yourself a favor and go buy it. In March 2007, the Sebado classic lineup of Barlow, Gaffney, yes, they patched things up, and Lowenstein reunited and went on tour together for the first time in 14 years. And while on tour, and old friends started showing up at the shows. Jay was thinking about getting the old Dinosaur Jr. back together, despite all the mean things Lou used to say about him. But age changes people. With respect to Jay, it's like he, he, is a per, he definitely is open to change. In a way, coming back into his, his orbit, you know, it, it was. It felt. It was. It could have been very risky for me to do that because he was such a powerful figure in my life. But in a lot of ways, it's really. Uh, it's. It's been probably one of the most life affirming things that I've done.
After 16 years, the original Dinosaur Jr. lineup of Lou, Jay, and Murph are back together and touring regularly. This is my recording of them at the Brooklyn Bowl, the night of the interview. They have since released four more studio albums and they sound as fierce as ever. And while time has turned Jay into the spitting image of Gandalf the Grey, Lou looks young. He's got a full head of lustrous, dark, curly hair and looks to me like like a, uh, a blue-eyed cocker spaniel. He's remarried, got three kids, and just released another solo album, Apocalypse Fetish. We'll get into his reflections on his career, his many incarnations, and what drives him as a songwriter in part two next week on The Well. The Well is produced and edited by Anson Mount and myself, Brandon Edgens. Theme music by Jonathan Myberg. For more on all the music in this episode, please visit our website, thewellpod.com. Again, that's thewellpod.com. Special thanks to Lou Barlow for sitting down with me and telling these stories for what must be the one millionth time for him. Please leave us a review on iTunes. And while you're there... Pick up some Lou Barlow records. Do it. You'll thank me. And have a great week. You got it.